Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start in verse 17. It's at the very end of the chapter, and we're going to read through uh, chapter 2. That's Jonah 1, verse 17 is where we'll start. Uh, we've taken a couple weeks break from Jonah, and we return to the action today. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I'm part of the team here at FAC. It's always a joy and a privilege to be up here uh, with you. Uh, if we have not had the chance to meet yet, if you are new or relatively new to FAC, I would just love to extend that invitation to come up and introduce yourself after service. I'm usually hanging up uh, out here up front, uh, and uh, we love new people. I love new people, and I want to know you. Uh, and so if you could help me out by making yourself known, we would, we would love the opportunity to uh, meet you. I also want to remind you that this fall, we have launched a new prayer ministry here at FAC. Every single week during every single service, there are people in the gym praying for us. Uh, there are people in the gym right now as we speak praying for us, praying for you. And I want to invite you to be a part of this ministry. If you aren't um, plugged in anywhere second service, if first service is your normal service and you're not serving or plugged into a Sunday school class, uh, let me invite you to just participate in what I think is one of the most important ministries of the church in prayer, in praying that God would lead us and guide us and direct our steps here at FAC. Uh, prayer is our first work, and um, we believe that this is one of the most important things that we'll do on a Sunday morning. And so consider that, second service, even today, uh, joining them in prayer to, to pray for FAC. With that, let's go ahead and turn to God's word together, and then I will pray that he would guide and equip us using these words today. Jonah chapter 1, and verse 17 says this, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. And Lord, we know, Father, that we can't even hope to understand your word without the help of your spirit. And so I would ask, Father, that your spirit would come this morning and use these words to transform our minds, 
to conform to you, transform our hearts to conform to your will. Lord, would you bless our time this morning as we study your word? And it would, would it be transformative, Father? And in your holy name I pray. Amen. This past week I was summoned for jury duty. The, the jury waiting room was one of the more interesting places that I have ever tried to prepare a sermon. <laughs> it's no Starbucks. I was actually tempted to just get up and start preaching, right? Because <laughs> this would accomplish two things. The first thing is I would have had a captive audience because they're not allowed to leave. It's more than what we can say on Sunday mornings sometimes. <laughs> Number two is they probably would have excused me from jury duty because they don't want the quack job sitting on the juror seat. I've only ever reported for jury duty one other time in my life, but it does give you a taste for the justice system. Even as you walk into the courtroom, there is a deep sense of solemnness as you now become a part of the judicial system. My only other experience with jury duty occurred a few years back. And when I walked into the courtroom, the defendant was actually already sitting there with their attorneys, and uh, they were already in the room with the prosecutor. Uh, This time last week, though, was a much different experience, as when I walked into the courtroom with all the prospective jurors, there was nobody in the courtroom. So I thought, I wonder what the norm is, right? So they sat us down, the, the, the judge came in, and he was there for all but five minutes, and he explained that uh, the defendant had already been in there, and he already pled guilty, and they moved straight into sentencing, and so we were not needed, and we were excused. In this case, some kind of crime was committed. I don't know what it was. They didn't tell us. But the defendant owned up to his or her wrongdoing and accepted the consequences that went with it. And this reminded me, actually, of where we last uh, left Jonah. Right In Jonah 1, a few weeks back, by way of reminder, we find that God tells Jonah to go out to Nineveh, which was the enemy to Jonah's people. God calls Jonah to preach against them. And Jonah, knowing that God is full of mercy, didn't want the Ninevites to hear this message from God because he feared that they would listen to it and they would respond and they would repent and that God would show mercy. And so Jonah set sail the opposite direction of Nineveh to a city called Tarshish. In reality, he's not running away from Nineveh, as we discovered. He's actually running away from the very presence of God, the voice of God, if you will. Well, God in his sovereignty quite literally threw a giant storm at Jonah and the sailors that were with him. And through these events of trying to figure out what was going on, it was determined that Jonah is the culprit and the one responsible for the storm. And Jonah instructs the sailors to throw him overboard so that the storm may calm down. You see, what we see here in chapter 1 is that Jonah committed a crime against God. It was an act of rebellion, and now he has owned up to his wrongdoing, 
and has accepted the consequences that went with it. Now you'll notice that there's no remorse from Jonah to this point. There's no repentance shown, no appeal to the process, just a very passive acceptance to the fact that he had run from God and he indeed would be put to death by the storm because of it. A crime was committed. Jonah pleads guilty. And in the eyes of Jonah, an appropriate sentence is necessary. To the first time reader of Jonah, we kind of lose some value and some emphasis in this book because we're all fairly familiar with the story. But if this is the first time that you're reading this story, you actually feel that Jonah is done. He's a goner. There's no way he could have survived that. And we see that emphasized even more in the narrative in verse 16 because it focuses on the sailors and what the sailors did after the storm is calm. Right? There's, there's no hope of surviving the turbulent waters. It seems as though Jonah's story is over to the first time reader as he sinks to the bottom of the ocean. But then we come to verse 17 and we find that while we may believe our time with Jonah is done, God is not done with Jonah yet. In that verse, just as God sent the storm that landed Jonah in the water, he now sends or appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah up. Just as Jonah's flight to Tarshish was interrupted by divine intervention via the storm, his pending death is now interrupted by divine intervention via a great fish. And this shows us that God's providential hand is working behind the scenes through this entire story to accomplish his will. Now, this is the part of the story that, uh, of Jonah that seems to be the most far-fetched and has been met with a considerable degree of skepticism. It's a hard pill to swallow, if you will, pun intended. When a modern audience reads this story, they, it, it is reasoned to be just too incredible to have actually happened. But that's the very definition of, of miracles, in that they are by nature supernatural. They occur above and beyond what would normally naturally happen. Norm Geisler, who's a famous uh, apologist who's gone on to be with the Lord, um, would argue that people who doubt the story of this great fish swallowing Jonah confuse believability with possibility. Is it believable? It's pretty far-fetched. But is it possible? Absolutely. And just because this is a rare event and is hard to believe shouldn't call into question its possibility. Geisler says that if we can't believe in rare events, then we can't believe anything from history because history is comprised of succeedingly rare, unrepeatable events. And at the end of the day, we don't receive any other information about this fish. And so we know when the original author wrote this, 
it was never interpreted. Uh, it was never meant to be interpreted analytically. No, the purpose of this verse, the sole purpose is to show us in the story that even though we expected Jonah to be dead, he indeed is still alive. And then something very peculiar happens in the text. The narrative tells us in uh, verse 1 of chapter 2 that Jonah prays from the belly of the fish, and then all of a sudden the genre of the book changes. In chapter 1, and then back as we continue in chapter 3 and 4, we have the genre of a story, a narrative, uh, right, that's being told in the third person. But now, in verses 2 through 9, we actually see a shift from third person to first person. And it turns into poetry. What this is, is a psalm of thanksgiving, In this poem, this psalm is a prayer that Jonah says from within the fish that recounts his experience in the water. Now, from a narrative perspective, you could actually remove these verses and the story would still make sense. It would not lose any narrative value by removing these verses. But what you would lose in removing these verses is the entire theological thrust of the book of Jonah. These are some of the most critical verses in the interpretation of the whole book. It's rich in theology and it teaches us that God is merciful and is in the business of salvation It shows us God's concern for humanity. Just as he was concerned for Nineveh, he is now concerned for Jonah. And so Jonah, alone with his thoughts for the very first time in the book, prays this prayer and speaks in the first person, which brings us into the position to give us a firsthand look at what this experience of salvation was like. And so let's dig a little bit into what's happening in these verses, verses two through seven. In verse two, it summarizes why Jonah was thankful, and it it serves as an introduction to the rest of the psalm. Why was he thankful? Because I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. We determined last time that this uh, idea of calling out is already kind of a buzzword, right? God told Jonah to call out to Nineveh and he didn't do it. The captain told Jonah to call out to his God during the storm. And there's no indication in the text that he actually did. And so here we are for the first time seeing Jonah actually call out specifically to God. And you'll notice that it doesn't actually say in our text what he called out when he was in distress. Because that's not important. Sometimes we convince ourselves that when we call on God, there must be some kind of formulaic way to reach him. There's a list of like magic words that I have to say, almost as if there's a specific set of words that I must say in order to be heard from God. But that's not the case here. And it shows us 
And the emphasis isn't necessarily on Jonah and what he said, because it doesn't matter what he said. What matters is that Jonah was hurt. The emphasis isn't on Jonah and what he said. The emphasis is on God's listening ear, that he is ready to hear us in our distress, that he is eager to listen. And so you don't need to be concerned about whether or not you're saying the right words in your distress. What you need to be concerned about is who or what is the object of your faith in a time of distress. Where do you go to for comfort? Who do you go to in times of desperate need? Is it another person? Is it a vice? Is it alcohol? None of those things can save you. None of those things can do anything about your situation. Too many times in our distress, we go to things that can't save us. And so it's imperative to call out to the one that can actually do something about it. This reminds me of um, a time several years ago. Ella was just a, a little girl. We hadn't had our two other children yet, and we attended the Waldemere picnic that FAC used to do. Now, Sarah and I were new to Erie. We had never been to Waldemere before, so we weren't quite sure what to expect. And so we were putting Ella on the rides. We, we've never put Ella on rides before, so I wasn't sure you know, what to expect or how she would react, but she did fine on a couple rides. And then we came to this ride uh, that, that kind of goes in a circle. It's the one with the ponies that, that are pulling the cart, right? And I, I'm too large to sit on that, so I'm putting Ella on the ride and they have like this little drawstring that goes across the cart. And as I'm, as I'm, I can't even say the word buckling because it wasn't even a buckle. As I'm, as I'm pulling the drawstring over her, I think to myself, some foolish kid could get out of this if they really wanted to. And then I proceeded to walk outside of the ride. Well, sure enough, halfway through the ride, Ella decides that she's done riding the ride, whether it's going to stop or not. And she stands up on the seat of the cart while it is still moving. And she falls over the back. And in my distress, what I can say is one of the most frightening moments as a parent in my life. I am seeing the other cart bear down on her. I just shout out to the ride operator, stop the ride. Sarah was already like over the fence. She was there in like two seconds flat. And Ella was fine other than some grease stains. She was, she was just fine. We've never been to Waldemere since. <laughs> but it was a real life moment in my own distress of calling out to somebody that I knew could do something about it. For Jonah... In his distress, he was in the belly of Sheol, and he knew that in that moment, the only one that could do anything about it was God himself. This term, Sheol, was actually most often used in the Old Testament to refer to the place that the dead went. 
It could be used as an expression for being close to death or even be synonymous for the grave. It would be like Jonah saying that he was in the belly of the grave. Jonah was on the brink of death when God swooped in and heard his cry. And in verses 3 through 7, we actually take a personal look and get a grim and rather morbid picture of not just what Sheol looks like, but what it feels like. We've all had that sensation of being underwater that's unsettling. But for Jonah, we read about a progressive descent into a watery grave. Take a look at it. Verse 3, he actually starts on the surface of the water. It says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. It's talking about the waves crashing in on him. The term, the deep, would have carried much significance to the original reader. People in those times looked at the turbulent, deep water of the sea or the ocean with fear and trepidation because it was a physical manifestation of the idea of chaos. When people looked into the water, the idea, the feel that they got was this idea of chaos or disorder. They, they don't know what was under the water like we do. They didn't know what kind of creatures lived down there. And so in their minds, the deep was unknown and utter chaos that was worthy to be feared. And so, so when you read about the deep in the Old Testament, it's always coupled with this idea of chaos or disorder. This is the idea that we actually get behind Genesis 1-2. If you were to look at that verse, this is what it says. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The point of Genesis 1, what it's trying to teach, is that there was chaos, there was disorder, and then God took that chaos and took that disorder, no matter what it looked like, and he created order. He made it orderly because he is a God of order. He can take the chaos and he can translate it to order. And here's Jonah descending into the deep. He's descending into the chaos. And it seems to be a physical representation of where Jonah is spiritually. Right? A man's life who has run from God is descending into chaos and the flood of waters surround him. There's nothing to hold on to. No lifesavers. Salvation cannot be found anywhere around him. And he is now at the mercy of the chaos. He's at the mercy of the water. In verse 4, we see that Jonah has been driven away from God's sight in the midst of this. This basically means that he feels banished from God. In his mind, there is no turning back now. There, there is no option for return. He's been completely rejected by God as he enters into Sheol. Now, this verse is metaphorical. See, in the land of the living to them, one could be in Yahweh's sight. But in the land of the dead, people are cut off from God. Sheol ends the opportunity to be in God's presence. 
And so I hope that you can pick up on the irony here. In all of chapter one, Jonah is doing whatever he can to flee the presence of God, to get away from God. And now he is experiencing firsthand what it's like to be separated from God. And it is agony. It is hell. Jonah flees from God, finally gets his wish, and he sees how terrible the absence of God really is. And this becomes more of a reality as he continues to descend in verse 5. Right, in verse 3 and 4, he's merely at the surface of the water, but now the water is closing in over him. He says, the deep has surrounded me. The chaos and the disorder is now all around him. There is no direction he can turn without experiencing chaos as the water heavily weighs over him. And then at the end of verse 5, we actually see that he becomes a prisoner to the chaos as he is bound by seaweed. You get this picture of kind of this seaweed wrapping around his head, possibly wrapping around his neck. Maybe it's wrapping around his arms because he can't pull it off of his, of, of his head, right? And he is, just, he is just bound. It seems as if even if he had the, the capability to swim through the turbulent waters, he can't now because he is bound by the chains of the sea. He has become a prisoner to the chaos. And then finally, in verse 6, he reaches the deepest part of the sea. He actually reaches the the sea floor. He has now touched the land at the bottom. It says that he's being swallowed by bars, what possibly could be sandbars, that will soon become his grave. Death is imminent for Jonah, and he has given up all hope as he has descended into the deep. We've talked about this theme of Jonah descending, of going down. The entire book to this point, Jonah has gone one direction, and is, that, that is down. In Jonah 1, we saw this, that he went down to Joppa, the harbor town, and he went down to the boat, and then he laid down into a deep, dark sleep, and now he is going down and down and down into the sea. But then, when Jonah can sink no lower, when when he is down as deep as you possibly can be without being dead, God intervenes. In the second half of verse 6. For the first time, Jonah goes up. This is a pivotal turning point, a dramatic reversal of events, and it's not set out by Jonah's capability. He's praying to God saying, yet, but... One of the most powerful words in the Bible, but you brought up my life from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God, you brought me up. I was going down and you've brought me up from the pit. 
The word pit here is synonymous for the word grave. You see, Jonah wasn't saved just from serious risk. No, he was saved from death itself. He was dangling over the grave when God snatched him up. We see this even further in verse 7. When Jonah says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. When Jonah says his life is fainting away, he is basically saying that he is losing consciousness. He was on the brink of passing out. He came as close to death as possible. And then God stepped in. That's what happened. And then verses 8 through 9, if, if 2 through 7 describe God's saving actions in detail, verses 8 and 9 describe Jonah's response to the salvation work of God. One commentator writes that having experienced in his own life God's power to rescue him from the very jaws of death itself, Jonah, as an expression of his gratitude, promises to offer sacrifices and fulfill his vows to the Lord. We see here that because Jonah was saved, he is now offering sacrifices and vows to offer sacrifices to God. We see here that it's God's mercy and power that has now prompted Jonah to respond and behave in a certain manner, to obey. Two weeks ago, I attended our district conference uh, for the C- CMA, and um, the guest speaker brought up a progression that we have in our relationship with God, uh, and it, he t- spoke about how we often mistake this progression, non-Christians and Christians alike, and it fits well with our passage, so I would like to share it. A lot of people, even Christians, think that our progression goes something like this, that we believe, and then we behave and then we behold. We believe, we behave, we behold. First we believe in God, and then that prompts behavior, and then if we have a certain amount of time uh, that we are devoted to God in our behavior, then we can behold the glory of God. Almost as if it's our behavior that leads us to behold God. And in our minds, we reserve beholding God only for those that reach a certain point of holiness. Only for those that actually read their Bibles every day or come to church every week. Or if you're good enough, or if you reach a certain point spiritually, then you can have this experience of beholding God. This tells us that we don't behold God until we conform our behavior, but this is a lie that many Christians have bought into. You see, Scripture paints a much different progression. Scripture, time and time again, actually says that we behold first, then we believe, and then we behave. It looks something like this. All throughout scripture, we see that it's the glory of God that drives us to, to behavior and then belief. So we, 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 we don't behold, believe, behave. We, we, uh, I'm sorry, we don't uh, b- believe, behave, behold. We behold, believe, behave. 
This is what happened in Exodus, right? When God tells Moses to go back to Egypt to deliver the Israelites from bondage, do you remember what Moses said? If you, if you are familiar with the story, he says, God, Yahweh, how, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't believe me? What, what do we do? And God says, I will give you signs. I will give you wonders. I will give you miracles. And then they will believe. Then they will know. God tells Moses, hey, you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to tell him that I sent you and he's not going to believe you. But then I'm going to outstretch my mighty hand. And then he sends the 10 plagues. That's what the 10 plagues are. It's merely God showing off his might, showing off his power, showing off his, his glory. So God is saying that you can behold me and then you will believe. And then you're going to come back on this mountain and you're going to worship me. Behave. Behold. Believe. And then behave. The reason you're a believer and striving to behave according to God's word isn't because you grew up in the church. It isn't because you come from a Christian family. No, it's because at some point in your life, you beheld the glory and the power and the mercy of God. You observed who he is. So if you are a a Christ follower and you are struggling to conform yourself to his image, then behold your king. Look to him and just bask in his glory. You see, this is my concern for people who grew up in the church. Many of us have. Don't get me wrong. I want you to bring your children. It is of vital importance that you, that you bring them and that they're here every single week. But, but it, it, in some ways, the glory of God becomes commonplace. You see, we seem to emphasize and convince our children that, that through our involvement with church, you must believe, then behave, and then, oh, by the way, if you reach a certain point spiritually, then you can behold. We skip this step of behold because too often we emphasize the step of behavior. But there will never come a day that you can truly be transformed until you have beheld God. If you want true, authentic, raw belief in God, you must behold his glory. You must be able to sit there and say, God, I am just so small compared to you. Who am I compared to you? I think some of us probably want to skip the step of beholding God because it merely reminds us of how deep in sin we are. You sit here and say, can't can't we just, can't I just change my behavior? Like behavior modification, right? What is that? Can, Can I, can I get out of this mess without beholding God? No, because it's the only thing that will prompt authentic belief. When we behold God, we're actually reminded of the sobering reality that we too are sinking deep, just like Jonah in our sin, in our distress, in our fallenness, in our brokenness. We are entrapped by the seaweed of the deep and held in bondage 
dangling over hell itself. And if you don't behold God and believe in him, you will continue to descend until you are eternally separated from him at death. However, but there is hope. Just as Jonah was able to be rescued from the pit, we too can be rescued. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. It's the end of our passage. It's the end of Psalm. This Psalm It's the exclamation point at the end of Jonah's prayer. And it's what this whole passage is about. It's what the whole book of Jonah is about. That salvation comes from God. When we are dead in our sin, God brings us to life. And because he is the only true source of salvation from, from spiritual death, because it doesn't come from these vain idols that Jonah mentions, it only comes from God because it belongs to him, he is free to offer it to anyone he pleases. He's telling Jonah, salvation belongs to me, Jonah, so I have the freedom to offer salvation to Nineveh. I have the authority to offer it to you. You are not too far gone to receive salvation. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are, how deep you think you've descended. The offer of salvation is not up to you because it belongs to the Lord. I have met people that are in such deep places of regret and remorse and guilt and shame from their sin that they feel they shouldn't be saved. But that is not for you to decide. As salvation belongs to the Lord, he is free to offer it who he pleases. He offered it to Jonah. We'll come to find that he is offering it to Nineveh. And spiritually, he offers it to you today through Jesus. In the book of John, in the New Testament, John takes his entire book to record who this Jesus is and what he's done and the amazing miracles that he, that he did. And he writes about his miracles and signs. And then in John chapter 20, verse 31, this is what he writes. Go ahead and take a look. It says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What John is basically saying is, behold Jesus Christ the King, so that you may believe and have life. You see, God used a place of death to deliver Jonah to life. In the same way, Jesus went to the place of death, died on a cross, and was buried in the place of the dead for three days, and was brought up from the pit, so that all those who believe in his name may have life. 
And as you identify with Christ today, you can cling to the promise of the resurrection tomorrow. You can have life by calling out to Jesus, beholding his name, and believing in his name. Let's pray. And Lord, I praise you for what you've done and more importantly, who you are, Lord. I thank you that your very character is love, is mercy. You are the embodiment of mercy in Jesus on the cross. So I pray, Father, that we would experience and know that mercy in our life. While I may feel like I have descended to to the deep, not even feel that I've descended to the deep, but know that I've descended to the deep, Lord, would you rescue me and rescue us? I pray, Father, that if there is anybody here that does not know Jesus, that now would be the moment as they feel entrapped by their own sin, by their own fallenness, would you come and rescue them from the pit through Christ? We give you glory, Lord. I ask, Father, that you would bless the rest of our time here this morning, and even as we close with a final song and the offering, would you bless the offering, Father? Would would we um, be good stewards of what you've blessed us with? And in generosity, Father, would we seek to give so that Christ's name may be known in this place and beyond. We thank you, Lord. In your holy name I pray. Amen.